0: Welcome to the Redeemed Hearts podcast, where we encourage you to allow God to transform you mentally, emotionally, and relationally by living from your redeemed heart. Your hosts, Worley and Danina Kennedy, are licensed professional counselors and are the founders of Redeemed Hearts Ministries. Thank you for joining us today as we start part one of a review of the book, When Striving Cease, by Ruth Chow Simons. Worley and Danina will discuss the book and the different ways we self-reliantly strive, leaving us more overwhelmed and anxious. Thank you so much for listening today. Happy New Year. Here's Worley and Danina.
1: Welcome to
2: 2023. 2023.
1: That's amazing. Well, it's a new year and we plan to do something different with our podcast this year. And some of this comes out of... Being counselors, we often will refer people to books to read, or other podcasts, or you know passages in the Bible to read between our sessions, just to kind of keep them, you know, going in the same direction, thinking in the same direction, growing in, uh, you know, what we're working on there. And so, because of this, we decided we would like to pick a book a month and review it, or we might pick a topic and refer to more than. One book, you know, one book, but on that particular topic. So that's our plan for 2023 here. And as we start this new year, we think about what's very common to us. Uh, when we when we see the new year, often as a new start.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: We often, you, you know, have
2: your you have your resolutions.
1: No, I don't. <laughs>
2: Because. Oh,
1: because we're going to talk about that today. All right. We say goodbye usually to, you know, this year we'll say goodbye to 2022 and we're moving on to 2023. And starting a new year can be painful for some, um, especially as it pertains to starting a new year without a loved one mm-hmm. through death or even divorce and, you know, or some, you know, major change in life. But for many, starting a new year means... There's hope for something Mm -hmm. different or something better, uh, thus making the idea of the New Year's resolution. So we, uh, most people want to start the new year, you know, as far as starting something new. Or sometimes we think about it from the standpoint we want to leave something bad behind. Mm -hmm. We want to leave this addictive behavior or this stronghold or, um, you know, ways that we have lived or thought behind. Mm-hmm. But studies have shown that only 16% of people keep their resolutions, and many have tried to figure out why there's such a high failure rate to this.
2: What's surprising to me is 16%.
1: Actually keep it?
2: Sounds high. <laughs> I'm thinking that, that's pretty good, <laughs> but it's really not.
1: Well, many have written about what, what they think the reason behind people not being successful in this you know, might be, and Most of the reasons come back saying unrealistic expectations or not planning adequately ahead of time, not setting up a better tracking system. I certainly don't have time to set up a tracking system. Mm -hmm. Um, No accountability, you know, not enough time or willpower. I mean, these are often the reasons uh, that are stated for failing. But this all made us uh, decide that we wanted to review a book by um, Ruth Simmons, Simon. Simon. Called When Striving Ceases, we consider the New Year and the possibility um, that our New Year's resolutions to change our future or maybe run away from the shame of our past can only be truly met by the gospel of grace rather than the gospel of self reliance.
2: So let me let me just tell them a little bit about Ruth Joe Simons. I have a hard name for us, it. not not familiar with it, but Um, Just just from her bio, uh, she's a Wall Street Journal bestselling and award-winning author of several books, including Grace Laced, Beholding and Becoming, and When Striving Cease, the book that we're going to review. She's an artist, an entrepreneur, and speaker using each of these platforms to spiritually sow the Word of God into people's hearts. I like that, and that comes out in this Mm -hmm. book that we're going to review Says also through her online shop at gracelace.com and her social media community, Simon shares her journey of God's grace intersecting daily life with word and art. Ruth and her husband, Troy, are grateful parents to six boys.
1: That gives a lot of credibility right there.
2: Their greatest adventure, it says. (laughs) Goodness. Well, no wonder she's writing about when striving ceases. Can you imagine (laughs) Mm-hmm. I actually saw looked up and saw a picture of them and really you know beautiful family and um but I mean there's just a lot of energy in that picture mm-hmm. with all those boys, so that's a little bit about who she is. You could go online and look her up and learn more about her
1: mm-hmm. so as as you're thinking about how you're going to approach twenty twenty three uh, we, we really want to encourage you um, through this book, and so many of you may want to you know get this book and read this book beyond this, because we're just going to touch the surface of it. But she does a great job just comparing really the gospel of grace um, versus the gospel of self-reliance. And she says self-reliance is something we can control, manipulate, and measure according to our efforts, where grace, on the other hand, is a gift— And it's countercultural with the rejection of our self-sufficiency. And I really like in the book where she says that, you know, we're people who expect maximum productivity and creativity and perfection from ourselves, all the while navigating loss and isolation. She was writing this during COVID, so a lot of isolation, sadness, stress, she says stress eating, (laughs) and the perpetual low-grade fear and worry that's just under the surface all the time. And that many Christians say they trust that Jesus is enough, but then spend their entire lives trying to prove that they are enough. And our book is not really a call to get busy, to be better and do more. It's really a call to get discerning.
2: And you know what I found as I read it was that it it's a fairly s- small book in the sense of the chapters are not that long. It's 15 chapters plus the introduction. but that. That you could read it fairly quickly, but you really don't want to, because mm-hmm. because she she's a great writer as far as expressing sometimes very kind of complex things in simple ways that you want to want to be able to settle into it and reflect on stuff. So I appreciate the fact that you know some people aren't readers; they just don't enjoy reading. So listen to it on audio, but even then. Um, you may decide you're going to listen to a chapter several times, especially if it's something that's speaking to you. Because mm-hmm.
1: um, different chapters spoke to me than spoke to you. Yeah, and then what so. about the fact that she's really writing to women in she this is. book? So how, what would you say about well, that? Well, it's a little
2: uncomfortable because she said, um, she, you know, she wants to be my friend
1: <laughs> and that she yeah.
2: says, pull up a cup of coffee and we'll have coffee. <laughs> And I just was kind of unnerved by that <laughs> oh I've never really? I've never had a woman say that to me before <laughs> you. Uh, except maybe you um and then it was probably to tell me something that I need to work on
1: <laughs> all right, so what are your real thoughts um <laughs> uh,
2: so what I had to honestly I had to kind of get over that a little bit okay that this is written to women mm-hmm. but um there were certain chapters and i'm gonna I'm gonna be I'm going to spend more time on those chapters. That really spoke to you. That spoke to me, but that are just really solid, Mm -hmm. really good theological, you know, basis for stuff. And that'll kind of come out when we talk about it. So I want to say, it's not just for women. There's there's some good stuff here for men, too. Yes.
1: And I think you'll find that as we, uh, I mean, as we discuss it today, so.
2: And and one other thought, because you told me this was helpful, too, is, you know, it also, depending on a person's personality, Mm -hmm. it really will speak some more to some personalities, somebody's going kind of a personality really driven, yes, uh, constantly trying to be better and do better and so forth. I mean, it's really going to speak to that group. Mm-hmm. But with that said, the foundation of this speaks to all of us mm-hmm. because of what the propensity of our our flesh, our fallenness wants to do,
1: and really how little we really, truly know and understand about grace. So mm-hmm. if you're somebody that struggles with, Giving grace or receiving grace. I mean, this is going to be, you know, a book for you or even what we discussed today for you. And I think you'll find in this, she's broken this book down into two sections. The first eight chapters name really the underlying needs that we have that cause us to strive. And in our striving, it it usually only ends in us being more worn out, more anxious and more stressed and, you know, possibly depressed because we don't, we can't ever get it done. We Mm -hmm. never measure up. Ruth says that we may be driven by the desire to strive to please, to strive for attention, to strive to be good enough, to strive for approval, to strive to perform well, to strive to outrun shame, to strive to belong, and to strive to have it all. So that's the first section, and we're just going to kind of touch some highlights of those you know, first eight chapters there. And then in the second half of the book, Ruth writes about how grace changes everything. So in chapter one, I mean, one of the things that stood out to me, even there um, in the striving to please is that she said to women, is studies are showing that while women have unhindered opportunities for self-made success, empowerment, and freedom to break molds, in this generation, women are more anxious, more overwhelmed, and more weighed down than ever. And I thought, that's true. Mm-hmm. I mean, we see in our counseling practice, mm-hmm. you know it in my own life, um, you know, in in the people that I know. So in in this chapter one, Striving to Please, she uh, describes her tendency toward people pleasing, shape-shifting, and bending herself to seek another's approval um, in order to answer the question, am I enough? And um You know, she she basically says, the world says, you know, soothe your fear of not being enough with achievement. And she came out of the Asian culture, which really enforced this. Mm -hmm. I mean, and that's something that's important to think about is Mm -hmm. some of this, well, it's personality. Some of it is our family system or our culture. But she says, the world says, indulge in the kind of self-love that makes you resilient to anything or anyone that's unloving. know, be the best, replace, you know, your, um, you know, feeling like you're not enough with, um, control, you know, keep things neat and tidy, cover up your exhaustion, even with religious efforts that are just too nice to ever argue with, or have somebody not like you, um, that there, there's a huge effort here in answering that question, am I enough by seeking, you know, the approval of others?
2: You know, I just, um, Wanted to make a couple of quick comments about that first chapter. She she talks about her name mm-hmm. and it I means yeah. I thought well this is kind of interesting to even in this book, but her her name means bending but not breaking, mm-hmm. and just a picture there she because she talks about her her Asian culture coming from China. Um, her parents did. She was I think born here, but just the. She's able She's able to tell stories that really give a picture of how this is fleshed out, and that's always helpful. Um, but I liked this statement that she said, um, when you believe it's up to you to perfectly please God, you will struggle with guilt and fear. And then when you believe your only hope is God's grace, you will respond with gratitude and grace.
1: Mm-hmm. She'll flesh that out. Yeah, and then her name came... From the word for like a willow tree. Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I I mean it made Mm -hmm. me think different about willow trees, just that Mm -hmm. bending but not easily broken. Mm -hmm. Um and that, you know, really the second Corinthians twelve nine that God's grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness Mm -hmm. is her key, her key verse there. So so she you know we're just going to briefly touch on these i mean we are, we're driven by this you know striving to please and you know who are we striving to please the question we we really need to be asking ourselves because how we answer that <clears throat> is going to make a difference in our weariness and our exhaustion and our stress levels in chapter 2 um, i really want to read something to you from the book here she um talks here about striving for attention. And she tells a story that, that about her own life here, and um, she's, she's telling a story about how she was um, sitting at the dinner table, and she's recounting kind of some of her middle school drama stories that really had rocked her world and challenged everything she knew about you know, love and boys and friendship. And she was just pouring out all these details.
2: Because you can imagine a little junior high girl's doing at the end of her day, just excited and talking about all these things.
1: Yes. And she's she's doing this with her father at the kitchen table. And she says that he seemed completely unaware that I was even talking to him. My father is a quiet man. He shows love through fixing the sink. He's not terribly emotive and rarely weighs in on anything unless asked. But this, this was more than quiet. This felt cold. He didn't look up. He didn't raise an eyebrow, roll his eyes, laugh at the silliness, or even show one ounce of interest. My father wasn't the kind of dad who would invite me over to sit on his lap so he could tell me how precious I was or how crazy the middle school years were and that they would soon pass. This wasn't like the scenes I'd seen in the movies or the interactions I'd watched sometimes at friends' houses where American fathers would call their daughters daddy's little girl. Honestly, having a cool distance between us was normal. My dad wasn't one to seize the opportunity to make sure I felt seen, known, loved, or wanted. He wasn't particularly eager to be a safe place for me. On this evening, though, I had feelings I wanted him to acknowledge. I had expectations, and they weren't being met. It felt difficult to share all the details of my life, and I wanted a response. I was ready to call him out of his lack of engagement this time. How could he not care about these events of my day? Why don't you ever care or respond when I talk to you, I demanded, feeling justified in my frustration after disclosing such personal, intimate details about my preteen life. My father's succinct response instead broke through that momentary silence without a hint of emotion, explanation, or empathy, and he shut me down with six simple words. You have not finished the dishes. (laughs) I remember being speechless, which turns out is very rare for me, and instantly went silent. I grabbed the dish soap, squirted some on the scrub brush, and filled up the sink with water. I closed my mouth and finished the dishes and you know then she she goes on to say how her parents were very industrious people i mean they were working multiple jobs to provide for them and they they actually came to saving faith in Christ when she entered high school the same time she really surrendered her life to Christ and and so in some ways they were all infants in Christ together and continued to grow together but what she says here is that Those six words shaped much of my view of God for a very long time. You have not finished the dishes. What implications did I internalize from those six words? What I do is more important than who I am. I'm not worthy of God's time if I'm not doing a good job. The details of my life aren't interesting to my father, verse, you know, God even, unless they have to do with what I'm getting done. You have to earn your right to be paid attention to. You can't ask for anything if I haven't held up my end of the deal. I shouldn't expect empathy if I'm not perfectly empathetic. I get what I deserve, so I should become deserving. So she talks about how no one ever told her to draw those conclusions, but they came very, you know, naturally and that and that that's really what idolatry is it's aligning our hearts allegiance and love to anything less than the true recipient of our worship which has to be you know god himself but that you know we have this in in between time where um you know life is basically um impacted by others you know in our lives and that I I heard her in another interview on this one time and she says when it comes to God we have a believing problem not a behaving problem. And I you know I think that's what she's trying to talk about here is her striving for attention you know started with her father and then you know it impacted what she believed about God her father and um made it very confusing for her to understand the gospel you know of grace believing that you know, instead of that God the Father through Jesus Christ determines how we come to him, um, you know, it was she determined mm-hmm. whether God would come to her or pay attention to her or care about her. So that's in that second chapter.
2: Yeah, just a couple of comments that stand out that as you're talking, um, I, I believe that—so well, while in the book, she 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 doesn't bash her parents— She tells the truth about her parents. Mm -hmm. And she, you know, you get the picture that culturally and then also just who they were, industrious, hardworking. She tells their story and some of the the things that they came up against coming to the the States, how not everything worked out like they had planned. She gets into that in later Mm -hmm. chapters. But she doesn't bash them. She just tells the truth about them. And then she, in this instant, you know, formed a wrong conclusion about God based upon an experience or experiences she had with her father. Mm-hmm. The The beauty of the gospel, the beauty of what God has done in in sending Jesus is he said, in Jesus, you have a picture of who I am. And he's the perfect one. And that our parents <coughs> were never, never have been and never will be. And so, it often happens that uh, the form what, the things we form our views about god come out of our childhood because of the way our parents were that's mm-hmm. a natural thing that happens right. but they're wrong if that we believe who god is is what we see in our parents only uh,
1: because because like. we try and make god human yeah and like us or instead perfect. of
2: i mean she had this she had this kind of perfect this image of God formed out of the way her father treated her. Mm-hmm. And he wasn't, I just don't think he was a horrible
1: no, person. And I, here. I, like was, I he... mean,
2: I, I could see myself in that scenario. I mean, my little junior high daughter's going on and on and on. I'm looking over there at the dishes <laughs> and I'm thinking, you know what, I told you to do the dishes. When are you going to get the dishes done? And then that's my response, right? Mm-hmm. That's just, that'd be a very normal interaction okay. in that. So it just points out the fact that, she drew, and she says this, wrong conclusions. Um, that then she closes a chapter with these conclusions about coming to God. She says, um, and she uses manuscripture to do this, but basically she says that um, get what God would say is you are welcome even when you haven't been consistently in the Word. You're invited even when your faith is lacking you're loved even if you're ashamed of your track record. I mean, that God would have delighted in God, or that God delights in us coming to him even when we're less than.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that we're, I mean, that we're, he's paying attention to us. That's, this chapter's on striving, you know, for attention. And she was striving for that attention from her earthly father but God's always paying attention um to us and it's not based upon us and
2: um and part of the title of that chapter is unworthy. Yes. She felt unworthy. Yes. Interactions with her parents, whatever conclusions she drew, a whole lot of things. And then as a result of that, she's striving for attention. Mhm.
1: So chapter 3 is striving to be good enough and one of the things she says here is, if I'm honest, I would say I spent much of my early Christian life singing "Amazing Grace," while living like the words were actually, "God, let me be so amazing that I won't need grace." I just, you know, I I, I love that singing "Amazing Grace" while living like the words were actually, "God, let me be so amazing that I won't
2: need grace." That's a, that's a lot to ponder because a strong truth in
1: that. Mm-hmm. Um I'm I'm grateful for it but I'm going to work really hard to be good enough that
2: so that I don't need so it. So that
1: I don't need your grace. Mm-hmm. And you know this we as Christians can think we don't live with the works oriented gospel sometimes but um you know we do. We believe in God's grace but we still work like crazy to make sure that you know, we're good enough. And, you know, Ruth says that this, um, you know, led her to wearing herself out, chasing achievement. And that when you, when you're chasing achievement, it it really leaves you with two options, being enslaved to ever increasing demands to achieve. So, you know, workaholic, just, I got to do better, be better, do more, but we never arrive. And, um, or the other extreme, just to finally give up and defeat. So then um, that's striving to be good enough. Chapter four is striving for approval. And one of my favorite quotes in the book comes out of this chapter. And, you know, I want to talk about it in a minute because she says, Disappointment in others reveals pride. Disappointment in others Reveals pride. Disappointment in yourself reveals shame. And she says, You know, I want to believe I can be exactly who everyone wants me to be if I try hard enough. But my pride also wants to believe that others then should be exactly who I want them to be. If I'm showing up to please them, they should be showing up to please me. Anything less than meeting my standards in myself or from others is disappointing. So basically, you know, shame shows up when we know we're lacking and exposed in some manner, and then we want to make ourselves good enough, complete, perfect, not lacking. And those efforts that we're putting in make us prideful um, in the process. And, you know, I, I love that she uses Galatians 1.10 here where she says, am I now trying to win the approval of man or of God, or am I trying to please people? If I were still trying to please people, I would not be a servant of Christ. That we really can't live double minded um, in that way. So, and, you know, I, I know for me, it doesn't take long to recognize that I can't please God's standards and I cannot please everyone, nor will people come through for me in the way that I always want them to. And I think, um, Often what occurs comes in her next chapter where she's discussing, you know, our desire to strive to save ourselves from that, you know, disappointment or us disappointing other people and um, to do it by very performance-based living. So chapter five says we live with pressure to perform.
2: Let me just make one quote before we move to chapter five that she says right at the end of chapter four that, you know, jumped out to me in this Um, she just says, you and I are freed from the disappointment in others and disappointment in ourselves, not because we can't let it go, but because God stops us in the middle of our striving and comes after us. He doesn't let us go. Let us go on merit building, approval chasing, people pleasing or measuring up. He meets us right where pride and shame have left us stuck and disappointed and sets out the welcome mat of grace for me and for you. We need only to leave where we've been and step in. Now, she'll keep fleshing that out.
1: Mm-hmm. But we'll talk even a little bit more about sh- her chapter on shame here.
2: But oh, that, I just wanted to.
1: Yeah, that's good. So this chapter five, where it's striving with just, you know, the pressure to perform. I mean, Ruth basically says here that we strive to save ourselves through perfection. Um, and you know, I like how she says, we believe our awesomeness will save us from discomfort and embarrassment and, you know, other fears that we might dread with people. And when we let ourselves, you know, believe that our performance is the key to securing all we need in life, even including God's favor, we set ourselves up for joyless living. And, uh, you know, really hear that She makes the point that Satan wants us to believe that with enough practice, enough resources, enough hard work, a perfectly executed version of our life is actually accessible. And, you know, she points out that the generation we're living in right now, I mean, really is very performance driven. I mean, you know, and it's a lot of the language that they hear, uh, you know, be your own boss and make yourself happy save yourself be the hero of your own story you know you can be i mean think about as parents how easy it is to say you know you can be anything you want to be well that's true but what are we also you know saying there like um and this is what she's saying you know i mean being your own hero doesn't seem all that freeing when you think about it it actually looks and feels very exhausting and Um, She talks about our culture, how we're practically hooked up to our self-bettering resources intravenously, (laughs) so dependent on the latest content in books and podcasts and webinars and constantly asking the questions. Who am I? What's my purpose? How do I belong? Am I enough? Does anybody love me? And, you know, I like that she says there's, I mean, those are good questions. Even all these tools that we have are, they're good tools, Um, but there's nothing really wrong with those. But we have to realize that the answer was never, you know, meant to just be found in ourselves and our, you know, our performance. And she quotes a Danish psychologist um, um, with the last name Brinkman and says, Our self-help craze, the imperative to perform and be flexible and optimize yourself all the time has become pathological with us becoming victims of self-optimization fatigue. It is a process without an end. And it, you know, it's just this constant pressure, like she's saying to perform, but it's it's to, you know, get it right and do it better and
2: Yeah, and so what I think it exposed here is, you know, it's this striving constantly striving mm-hmm. striving striving. And what drives that? And so it just we're, you know, she's exposing through her own life this, what, you know, motivated her to do all these things. So I think for the reader, it begs the question of if I am exhausted and it's, I realize it's because I'm just trying to perform and I'm striving for success or those things you, to, to reflect and ask yourself, okay, so what's behind this? Mm-hmm. What's true? As much as anything, what's true? Um, Do I need to keep doing this? And, Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, I just, yeah, I think it in these chapters, she's exposing so much of what happens to us.
1: And different people can relate to, you know, different things here. But she's in this chapter pointing that Jesus, I mean, Jesus didn't seek to be his own hero. He simply fought to be you know, faithful. And his agenda was God's agenda.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And his only finish line was the one that God had ordained for mm-hmm. him. And, you know, basically that it was his desire to do God's will and not his own mm-hmm. from Luke 22. Um, his agenda was that we might know that everything's from God, um, John seventeen seven, and that we might know God's love. Um, and, uh, That's, you know, John 17, 26. So I'm giving that contrast there and just saying that, you know, performance over God's presence will always leave us fearfully reliant on our perfect execution rather than on Christ's perfect deliverance. Mm -hmm. And God wants our true worship, not our perfect performance. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, and He does that you know, while we were yet sinners, not once we arrived and not once we had our act together. So.
2: so you made a statement a minute ago, it was just in passing as you were talking and you were trying to say that, you know, listening to podcasts and reading books and all of those things is not a bad thing. Right. It can be a good thing. Um, and then you said something about with our kids, you know, we can say to them, you can be whatever you want to be. Mm-hmm. And And then you said, that's true. And then you went on and you know, kept mm-hmm. talking. But, you know, so I don't think we say to our kids, you can be whatever you want to be as Christian parents. I think right. I think what we want them to become anchored in is, I mean, who, who has God made you to be? And, and that you have this identity as a Christian in Christ. And I, I know those are words for adults, mm-hmm. but you have to communicate them to what your kid will understand. But then in that, then that's where there's there's going to be the ability to cease having to you know prove yourself. So I just wanted to comment on that. Yeah, I didn't, I didn't. You finish weren't that. that. Yeah. You just you were just making the point. But
1: I'm just saying it's so part of our culture. Well, and
2: as a parent, you yes. want to. I mean, I see my kids. I want them to be great, and some of that has to do a whole lot with me,
0: right? Mm-hmm. What I mm-hmm. didn't
2: achieve, you know, or you know, I see something in an I— You know, think well. Oh, wow! They could, you know, uh, when when Taylor was young and playing basketball, and he first started, and he hit lots of threes, it was like, you know, you know, it it just reveals what we want, and she's reorienting us to to basically say, well, what does God say?
1: And that Jesus was our example; that he he wanted what his father God. Yeah, wanted, and that he wants our, you know, God wants our worship of Him.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, not our, our performance. There. So, okay, chapter six: striving to belong. Um, in this chapter, who says we're looking for belonging in all the wrong places and paying too high a price with the wrong currency um you know so
2: i do want to say this. she illustrates this by the lunchroom the title yes. which has is a lunchroom so she pictures that it's the junior high lunchroom
1: mm, i think so yeah it's not it's not a high school It's just junior yeah. high
2: lunchroom and yes. all the 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 opinions and who's cool and who's not cool and what you bring as far as food goes it's really quite funny mm-hmm.
1: yeah it was a, a good illustration was there more you wanted to say about it?
2: No, other than I just want to paint a picture that it's, it, it just paints a picture of the striving that comes out of that environment.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, and just that she, you know, then and in different times in life, and even through COVID, she talks about how she found herself anxious and distraught um, with just all the burdens of the, <clears throat> you know, the, the season there um, that they were going through. But uh, it, she, I liked how she said, you know, we're we're trying to pay that with um, you know, the wrong currency that you know, we're we're looking for home. We're looking, you know, if you think about that, I mean, we want to know we belong somewhere.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And we think in our counseling practice some of the And we made for that. Yes. And some of the deep pain mm-hmm. that people have grown up in and lived with because they did not have a home, mm-hmm. they did not have parents. Um, they did not have friends. They, I mean, they felt like they didn't have a home or a place
2: to. They never belonged.
1: Yes, to um, to call home. And she says, you know, we we go into our adulthood still doing this, looking for home and the things that will identify us. So it might be our job or our success or maybe the people we know or we hang out with or the clothes we wear or the hobbies we have. or. The, which,
2: which goes back to the, it's, you know, we're doing what we did in the junior high. In junior lunch High. Because mm-hmm. we we were cool. We wanna fit in. Had a certain lunchbox. And she didn't have that lunchbox. And she was horrified mm-hmm. by our lunchbox. Well, I remember, you know, my mom one time in junior high made Wiley and I uh our sandwiches on homemade wheat bread.
1: Oh yeah, I remember the story. <laughs> and
2: it was like the other kids were making fun of it because it wasn't the white bread. She I think she may even talk about white bread in her book, but you know, it wasn't like what the other <laughs> kids had. And yet and I even remember it was so she, much better. Oh,
0: <laughs> Homemade today I'm wheat thinking, bread. of course
2: she would do that. <laughs> yeah. But it was embarrassing because the you know, we cut <laughs> our own slices and they're not all the same size. And, or she did. <laughs> and kids would make fun of us. So I was, you know, struggling. Because Mm -hmm. I wasn't like everybody else. I didn't feel like I belonged. Mm
1: -hmm. Well, and one of the things that she says about (laughs) that, too, is and, and the point you're making, is how desperate we are for it. Yes. To fit. Yes. You know, even if it's not a good place. Yes. Or it's over something really silly. I mean, it's so deeply ingrained in us.
2: And it's such a good thing. We're made to belong. Yes, God made us, and is
1: with that desire to belong,
2: and has created and 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 saved us to belong. I mean, adopted us to belong.
1: And He wants to be our Father. He wants to be our home. Mm -hmm. And you know, one of the examples she uses is the high price that we're paying with wrong currency. Is she says we turn to the homes we find in our phones giving our devices the mental focus, the monetary resources and the best hours of our day. Wow. I mean, that's
2: that's very current.
1: A very current high currency. Mm. And the price of our belonging, you know, really was set and already met through God's son, Jesus mm-hmm. Christ, our redeemer, and um, she says we've been fit and fashioned for a belonging, we were always made for. We're not working tirelessly and endlessly to somehow become a better version of ourselves that is more desirable or more acceptable to some unachievable standard. We are not slaves to a cruel master of social approval or popular opinion, but gratefully mastered by a loving father who paid a high price so we can belong to his family. You know, he is our home. That's a good quote. So, Striving to belong. Um, The next chapter is really important.
2: Um, You have to read this and reread this and reread this and listen to this because of its importance. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's chapter seven, striving to outrun shame.
1: And I'm going to just read you a couple of things here um, that I think will give you an idea about um, what she's trying to say here. But I mean, she gives the definition of shame um, as a painful emotion caused by consciousness of guilt and shortcoming and wrongdoing. So biblically, it's what Adam and Eve felt when they sinned and they hid from God, and um, and and really, when shame entered in, um, you know, th- that's when all the the questioning of of just thinking, you know, that maybe God was holding out on mm. me. Maybe God isn't good. Maybe there was something he wasn't telling me or um, giving me all that I needed. And then there's, you know, this feeling of lacking. She has a great quote by Dr. Kurt Thompson where he says, By shame, I'm not talking about something that necessarily requires the intensity of extreme humiliation. Rather, it is born out of a sense of there being something wrong with me or not being enough and therefore exudes the aroma of being unable or powerless to change one's condition or circumstances so ruth says in other words shame isn't isn't just feeling unworthy over something you should or shouldn't have done but rather the nagging feeling that no matter what you do or don't do you'll never get it right not enough forever lacking fundamentally incapable of being who others expect or hope you'll be that's the shame i know privately spelled out in verbal and nonverbal ways by people I've loved the most. I feel as if I've known shame and the accompanying need to either prove my worthiness or outrun my feelings of inadequacy my whole life. And she says, my guess is you've known this kind of shame as well. You know, whether your family's too proud to admit it or your church is too fearful to address it or your friends are too distracted to work through it with you, you know, or you're too weary to face it, but um, that, that you know, this is so significant, and the thing that I really thought's important in this chapter as well is that she, she brings up the fact that we are living um, in a culture today, you know, that's basically the cancel culture, and um, she quotes um, someone out here saying, that um, in cancel culture, a single mistake is perpetually, perpetually unforgivable, because it's not simply a guilty act. Rather, this mistake defines the individual's identity, turning them into a shameful person, someone who can be canceled.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: I mean, we're just we're living with that, and it's mm-hmm. creating this, you know. Fear-based living, not Mm. grace-based living, Mm -hmm. but, you know, constantly trying to outrun, you know, failing and outrun, um, you know, basically being canceled. Mm -hmm. And she says, when the moral standard is changing and disconnected from a source of authority, those who don't measure up get left behind. The goal of the cancel culture isn't to redeem or restore or reconcile. It's to shame and reprimand,
2: Mm
1: -hmm. and
2: um, yeah, shame in in that way they're saying shame isn't you did something wrong and it's forgivable. Shame is there's something wrong with you.
1: Yeah, she's saying it's your identity because that's who you are. mm -hmm.
2: And yeah,
1: and there's no opportunity for redemption or Mm -hmm. reconciliation or you know even to be reprimanded and you know to grow from that. So. You know,
2: she you're gonna make another comment on this, but so she gives the story of the prodigal son, yeah. which is very familiar. I just want to make the comments that the, the picture she painted about the father and his in the in the prodigal son returning home who had done all these, you know, shameful acts. Again, it's not that the person was identity was that, but the the acts that he did and that the father in order to greet him and see him, did in that day what was considered the most shameful. Mm -hmm. Because an older man, an elder like that, would never have pulled up his robes and showed his legs and run towards his son. That would have been more shameful than what the son did Mm -hmm. in that culture. And he did it intentionally. He knowingly took it upon himself put the attention on him which is a which is the picture you know mm. of of god's grace and 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 that it's really the if 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 you struggle with shame and you have a lot of shame the one who can do something about our shame is the one who took it upon himself in the most shameful act who bore our shame as it says in in hebrews 12
1: mm-hmm. and and that's the point of her whole book here is really only the grace of God's enough to bring us home,
0: mm-hmm.
1: only the grace of God's enough to make us worthy, and only the grace of God's enough to keep us, you know, in the love of God. So while we can't really outrun shame, I mean, we can run to the one who paid a high price to bear our shame.
2: Because we can outrun it.
1: Right. And, you know, people, especially in this culture today, and it's, it's extremely, I mean, I've had it happen to me. It's extremely painful. hmm with believers mm-hmm. in Christ, that they just cancel you, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. I mean, that has a far-reaching impact, mm-hmm. and we counsel many people that this is going on.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And I, you know, I think they know very little of the, very of, little of grace mm-hmm. and the the power of the gospel mm-hmm. when it doesn't get, get lived out, mm-hmm. and it does put you in a place that you feel like. Gosh, I just I got to be perfect mm-hmm. to be loved, to be accepted, to have somebody be my friend, to
2: you know, uh, and that would be stay
1: in relationship with me, and
2: that, that yeah, and that's how you feel, and that's yeah. but that and of course she counters that with this direction in the whole book. You don't want to go that direction,
1: right? But I'm saying in the flesh and the humanness, yeah. you do, and so in order to keep going, it's it's very important to um, you know make sure. Um, we're going home to the father, to the person that we do belong to, and he he doesn't he doesn't treat us that way. Mm-hmm. Um, chapter eight is about striving to have it all. and uh, I mean, I think the best way um, to really get what she's saying here is um, to kind of read her, you know list. she says most of us in our minds, we, you know, we we have this mindset and we think this is what our life needs to look like. I'm, you know, she's speaking to women here. I have a romantic husband, number one. She does? <laughs> this is what she wants. This oh, is wanting to have it all. It. You know, we have this desire yep. to have it all. Right. I want a romantic husband. I want a clean home. I want obedient children. I want loyal communities and friends. I want a secure career. I want to eat clean. I, I want a consistent workout schedule. I want a thriving church that welcomes my gifts. I want a balanced life. I want good neighbors. I want a trained dog. I want a clean refrigerator. I want to be out of debt in 10 years. I want a well-kept lawn. I want vacations that don't wear you out. I want trustworthy girlfriends. I want pillows that stay put on my couch. I mean, that's the best way to say what she's trying to say here. Striving to have it all. We want that. And internally, we sometimes don't admit that we have that list. Um, that's, you know, that's going on. That's just saying, you know, work harder. And then, you you know, you might get there. I was thinking how I used to try and have my whole house clean at the same time.
2: I remember. Right? (laughs) (laughs) I would put
1: pressure on everybody around me to have this whole house perfectly clean at the same time because I thought then I could sit down and rest or relax. Mm. Took me a few years, right, to realize Uh, (laughs) that never would happen. And I had to, you know, learn how to, you know, find rest, rest yeah. um, outside of all those, you know, everything being in its, you know, in its perfect place at the just the right time. So, um, it, did did you read the story about the red envelope in this chapter where mm-hmm. um, it, it's really kind of a. Uh, they're given at the Chinese New Year, you know, mm-hmm. weddings or special celebrations, and and you know only crisp new bills, no crinkly mm-hmm. money or coins from your wallet could go um, in this envelope, and and um, it, it it was pretty extravagant. It was adorned and exquisite, and the you know flap is sealed, and um and I mean she basically said there's you know, all this etiquette for it, like you never open it it in front of the presenter, you, you know, decline the gift at first before you receive it. You receive it with both hands and your children should bow. And if it's the Lunar New Year, you don't forget to say, and it's something in, you know, a language I can't read here. So, Um, so it's a, you know, it was a real tradition and, but it had all of these rules attached to it. And, um and so even though you might get that hundred dollar bill and it's supposed to be a gift to you, it, it, I mean, it had all of these strings attached to it, basically.
2: And Just in receiving it. Mm-hmm. It had to be received in all those ways.
1: Yes. How you received it. And, and she basically says, a gift with an invoice due upon receipt is no gift at all. Mm. And that. You know, God eliminates this tension of his gift by pronouncing us unworthy to begin with. Mm -hmm. I mean, he tells us, you know, right Mm -hmm. off the bat with clarity. Um, And so that we don't have to question his motivation, Mm -hmm. that God's only obligation was to his holiness and his love for us did not have to end um, because it was, you know, basically met. In the person
0: mm-hmm.
1: um, of Christ. And she, you know, she talks about for so long she looked at the gift of God like a gift that came with rules and etiquette. Mm-hmm. Um, him bearing down with his authority, requiring proper etiquette and a perfect, you know, two handed bowing reception. Me wondering if God really loved me or if this gift was but an obligation or a display of his expectations for my good re- behavior. This actually is all rather me-centered. And it turns out a me-centered view of anything, including one's theology, is the lens through which we end up seeing the skewed ideas of never enough and forever needing self-improvement. All I ever wanted, what anyone really wants, is to be worthy of a gift that comes with no strings attached. After all, a gift with an invoice due upon receipt is no gift at all. And she uses a quote by... Um, A. W. Tozer and says the man who has God for his treasure has all things in one.
2: Mm. So You know, the one thing I just say people should start with in that receiving of a gift is what God starts with is you're not worthy of the gift. That mm. that that's a humbling act, but it's a freeing act. You know, people have to know we're sinners before he can save us. And so we have, to, we have to embrace that in order to experience the, the great riches of God's grace, what He's done for us.
0: We're going to take a break in this discussion today and come back next week with part two. Thank you for joining us as we discuss the many ways we self-reliantly strive to make our lives and relationships work. We hope you join us again next Monday as Willie and Danina discuss the second half of this book and the ways grace changes everything. If you are looking for more content from Willie and Danina or want to reach out and contact us, we encourage you to visit RedeemedHeartsMinistries.com. If you enjoyed the podcast today, please rate and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or Google Podcasts, and share this episode on social media. Have a great week, and God bless.